experience to interact with the guy who's on the very council who's trying to try him. Jesus created a very customized approach to help this guy named Jer- Joseph of Arimathea, a business owner, uh, a businessman, a lawyer, draw him to the truth to investigate the claims he's making. So as we continue custom home today, uh, in the theme of Jesus' last hours being hunted down, I thought it'd be fun to add a little fun factor to the message today by trying to customize it to your request. So I have some uh, ping pong balls that uh, I have not seen yet. Uh, and I'm going to ask for some words. I'm going to try and work into the message later to customize it for you. So this one's a favorite movie. If you don't have a favorite movie, pass it to the person next to you. So who wants to give me a favorite movie? Favorite movie? The Proposal. Oh, man, I should have thrown over here. The Proposal. That'll be a challenge. The Proposal. All right, let's do another one. We have uh, your name of a pet from childhood. Who's got a pet from childhood? We'll assume you caught it. Chet. Pet from childhood. Pepper. All right. Pepper. I will do one more. I don't know if I can work in three, but I'll try and work in three. Uh, the title of a book or magazine. All right. What do you got? Book or magazine? We'll assume you got it. The Peaceful Warrior. It's all P words. This is great. The Peaceful Warrior. All right. I'm going to see if I can customize the message and work in all three of those later. Because we're talking about how Jesus interacted with both a person of business and a person with the practice of law, I thought it'd be great to hear a custom story about how God has worked with someone who attends our church who's been both in law and in business. So can you give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Mark Addy. Mark, come on up. Yeah, so I'm here. I forgot what I was going to say. There it was. I'll work with you, Chad. You'll get this. <laughs> so we have a rehearsal. Mark, uh, tell me a little. We, we've been meeting over the last couple of weeks uh, about your journey. And tell us a little bit about what God used it in uh, even the beginning of your life to sort of set the foundation for faith and, and what happened from there. Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's a, it's a privilege to be here today. Uh, we've gone through this series of services. My wife and I sit in the back and we've heard all these incredible people come up and Every week I get a little more anxiety, and she said, well, maybe you should just make something up. So I can play with me a little bit today. But uh, I, I had uh, a really neat uh, growing up. I grew up in uh, northeast part of Ohio uh, on a farm. My, my family were dairy farmers, tremendous parents. Uh, and we grew up, I mean, as a farm family. Uh, my father was a coal miner and, uh, and a farmer. Um, I had seven uncles that were coal miners. And if you know that area of the country, it's primarily coal and steel. And we grew up... The church was just part of our lives. It, um, I would go to church. I'd go to Sunday school. We'd have a covered dish every Wednesday, Bible study. Uh, it was a small church uh, called Pleasant Valley, overlooking Tappan Lake in an area. And uh, I was all in. It was a congregation of about 50 people that in the summertime maybe it swelled to about 60. Uh, but I would pick up the collection. Mm-hmm. I would light the candles. I would do the communion. I would mow the grass. I was the church janitor. If you, if, I may try to get a job here sometime, too, but I mean, that's so. Uh, and uh, my cousin and I, we always laughed that we were the holiest people because after communion, we get to clean up the, the grape juice and the, and the bread. So, but it was, it was a tremendous way to grow up. And I always dreamed of, of being an attorney. And it was, it was really not to, to be for the, for the money or the prestige or anything like that. It was, I looked around and in that community, the regulations really impacted because coal and steel during that period of time, I watched from, really full employment to, to really some of the highest un- unemployment rates 
in, in the state of Ohio. So went to college and uh, studying environmental sciences to, to uh, uh, get a background of that in chemistry. And again, my parents were always very supportive. No one in my family had gone to college. So this was kind of a new endeavor for, for us. And at that time, I decided I wanted to go on to law school. And again, that was kind of a big step because I really didn't have any money to do that and figuring out how I was going to work through law school and, and to make that all work. And when I was in law school, I, I really, you know, I, I met the person that had the biggest influence in my life, and that's my wife. And um, she was also in law school uh, from, from Cincinnati. And so we came down to Cincinnati to start our careers. And Kelly came, uh, she was a county prosecutor, her dream job. Um, and I started with a private practice of, of law. And shortly thereafter, we were married, uh, so we've been married about 28 years. And, and guys, let me just give you a little uh, heads up. If you ever want to win an argument, do not worry, marry a prosecutor, because it's not going to happen. <laughs> That's good news. <marriage. laughs> so we, we started, and I started my career, and, and uh, Kelly started her career. And the thing about law is it can be really consuming, because here's this neat little thing that you can bill hours when you're driving, whenever you're working, wherever you might be. And I'd always grown up with a, kind of this work ethic that you, the harder you work. So got on this trail of, look, I'm going to really go at this hard. And, and I did. And I worked really, really hard. And I was fortunate enough to be with a very supportive law firm. Um, and I was able to be the youngest partner in the law firm. And then a couple of years after that, I was named to the management committee. And, and I was named president of the firm when I was 33 years old. So it was, it was a great experience. I mean, here's like your dreams coming true, and but but I really found that it, it it was a fight. It's a fight to keep balance. I mean, it's always a fight. You're always struggling there. And luckily, I had an incredibly supportive wife, Kelly, and we just our son Harrison had just been born, and we we're trying to figure out, look, this can't continue. Something has to give because it's mm-hmm. just a little too much. And, and and Kelly, you know, again being the way she is, um, sacrificed her dream job. She gave up being a prosecutor to stay home. And our daughter, Emily, who's with us today, uh, when she was born, you know, Kelly became a stay-home mom and, 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 and really made that sacrifice for our family. Well, as I continued on with the law firm, again, you're, you're trying to figure out how that balance and how you can keep things going. You're trying to do things right for your clients. You're trying to balance your family, trying to be a good father, trying to be involved with your uh, being a good husband and in a constant challenge. And, uh, at that point in time, it was, it was neat. Mike Marker, who many of you may know, had been a client of mine, and uh, Mike Marker uh, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, um, you thought about joining this Bible study, you know, or maybe we'll have a Bible study. I said, well, look, I'm really struggling. I'm trying to keep up with everything we have to do at home and in the practice. And he goes, no, we're going we're gonna to deliver. We're going to come to your office. How about if I come to your office and we do a Bible study? Hmm. And uh, so he did. He came, and we started, and Pete Bronson, who many of you may know, and two or three attorneys from my office, we started a Bible study in, in my office. And it was just a tremendous experience because, again, we got to kind of explore and, and, and you know, as you gain trust, you know, we got to talk about some real challenges we had. Hmm. Well, well, then, Chad, you know, it's kind of as, you, as I progress, I was almost 40 years old, and as they say, the, the law can be, a, you know, a jealous mistress. And, again, trying to, trying to keep up with everything. And I, and I decided I needed to make a change. And so at that point in time, the change was, I'm going to leave the practice of law. I'm going to do something that I, you know, uh, been doing for a number of years. And it was, it was difficult because I had great partners, great relationship with clients. It's something I always dreamed about. But I wanted to take that next challenge 
And I also wanted to be able to have the freedom to be able to coach my kids and, and do things that I couldn't do when I was practicing mm-hmm. law. So I made that change into the business world and uh, went to work for a client that I'd helped start a few years before. And at that time, we had 25 uh, uh, grocery anchor shopping centers. And um, I guess over the last 15 years, we've, we've grown that to now about 325 uh, grocery anchor shopping centers, one of the largest owner in the United States, headquartered here in Cincinnati. So I kind of switched that legal hat to, mm-hmm. to more of a business hat. And you said some of the, you know, the impact of faith early on from your parents, the impact of this Bible study, how do you really prioritize, even though everything would say, hey, you got the dream job, all those things began to shape you into making that decision. Now you're loving business. And then you told me that sort of another customized experience God had for you was recently getting into a Bible study here in the last couple of years with a group of men. And though there was a different Bible study that impacted you at your workplace, tell me a little bit about what you've experienced in a Bible study with a group of men here that have sort of been a catalyst to your spiritual growth. Yeah, and again, it's, it's kind of strange how life takes you in certain path, pathways. My daughter Emily, as we mentioned here today a few years ago, she said, We'd been going to church regularly, and she wanted to switch, and, and we started coming to this church. And, and I knew Mike Marker, who, again, I'd known for years, had been an active role in this church. And Mike's always been kind of a mentor, and, you know, he'll send me a message, or, hey, did you see this, or you read this book, or whatever. You're never quite sure where that direction's going. Mm-hmm. And when we started coming here, after about a year, Mike reached out to me and said, hey, have you, have you thought about, you know, a group, joining a group? And I'm like... You know, I'm always a little reluctant, you know, I don't want to be with a bunch of God squatters who are going to jump around and, you know, that's just not the way I am. I want to kind of dig into it a little slowly and develop. And he said, no, this is a small group. I think you'll like it and you'll enjoy it and get to learn a little bit more. And, and so I started doing that and it, it was exactly as he said and, you know, developed that, the, the, the relationships in that Bible study. And, and it's neat because we're learning, but we're also talking about real life things, you know, it's, you know, things that are impacting our lives as we go through. And that, that to me, is, is the most meaningful piece of it. So. Yeah. What's well, been cool of the week just to hear how each person has had their own journey. God used unique people, unique circumstances, unique events from your past and present to sort of shape your journey. So I appreciate you sharing your journey with us today. Can we thank Mark for being with us today? Thank I appreciate you. it. Jesus is going to interact face to face with a man named Joseph Aramathea. And like I said, he's a man of law and a man of business, a man who's on the Supreme Court of his day in Jerusalem. And he has seen many, many Passovers, gigantic festival, a Super Bowl of Jerusalem, two million people coming into town. He has had hundreds, thousands of people stand before him in the court of law. And yet this Passover feels different. This trial of Jesus before him feels different. There's something in the air tonight that Jesus is going to use in a customized way to draw Joseph into faith. The judge is almost every issue of law in the nature of Israel. And specifically on this particular day, he will come face to face with Jesus, a man that he will be impressed by, he will be impacted by. Now, Joseph is incredibly wealthy, so much so that even though he's from Arimathea, he will hire his own stonemasons to make an incredibly expensive tomb here in Jerusalem. He has wealth and with access to wealth, he had access to maybe just not eating the common bread of everyone else. He had access to meat. He had access to salt. He had access to pepper. He had access to all kinds of ways in which as a man of means, he would be able to use that. It's also interesting because over the hundreds of years that he has been on the council, most of the people on the the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, were, were corrupt by history standards. In fact, they say there was only 14 members of the council over over hundreds of years that were ever honorable. Joseph Arimathea is considered one of 14 honorable men who served on the Supreme Court. 
He is one of the three wealthiest men in all of Jerusalem as a prominent member of the council. And he is going to come face to face with Jesus several times. Herod, when Jesus is born and interacts with the wise men, will turn to this group and the scribes and say, where is the Messiah to be born? And so for 30 years, he's heard about Jesus. He's given information about Jesus. He's investigated Jesus. Several times over the last three years of Jesus' ministry, Jesus stood in the court of law with him. And when you come to the Supreme Court, everyone came into there with knees knocking, scared to death. They literally had your life in balance when you came to the court. They could imprison you. They could fine you. So people came into the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and either were intoxicated by the power. Wow, if I could have your job. Or they were intimidated by power. But when Jesus stood before him, he stood before the court like no one had before. A man not intoxicated by power. A man not intimidated by power. A man at even times spoke to power. He even spoke to this group and would say, what you're doing here is corrupt. That's not right. Didn't he know enough to be, to be scared at the power they had? He was impacted by this guy. He, he might have called him in the midst of uh, the way he interacted, a, a peaceful warrior he might have called him actually in his day. Just because he was able to have an incredible peace and yet this fearless warrior aspect to him in the midst of it. So we're going to look today at how, how a man of law well-known in the community, will weigh the evidence of Jesus and will have three responses to it. He's going to find something in Jesus that's real, something that's true, something that's worthy of his entire life. The first evidence he weighs is he sees the evidence of a fearless leader. I mean, Jesus was living proof in a man who operated in the court of law. And this first evidence that he sees of Jesus being living proof is that Jesus was a fearless leader. Here's how the passage introduces us. It says, now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that's the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a man who was into spiritual things. He was a man who was into his own spiritual journey. He was hoping God's kingdom would come. He wanted to know who God's Messiah would be, who God's representative would be. And even though he lives in Arimathea, that's not his last name, he, he's Joseph from a town called Arimathea, he decided to build his family tomb, not in his hometown, very odd. He built his family tomb in Jerusalem, spending an incredible vast amount of money to have stonemasons carve a personal family tomb there. Because he was waiting on the kingdom of God. Now, why was this important? It's important for, for a couple of reasons. One, even if you go to uh, Jerusalem today, you will see that in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives doesn't have any olive trees on it anymore. It is a giant graveyard. I got a chance to visit there several years ago. If you look up at the Mount of Olives, you'll see the Dome of the Rock there in the background. And it's just tomb after tomb after tomb after tomb on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because in the Jewish tradition, the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and they wanted to be the first one to rise from the dead when the Messiah came. So anyone who even hadn't figured it all out, but was serious about spiritual questions and spiritual journey, wanted to build a family tomb in Jerusalem so you could be where the Messiah comes when he would one day come. Well, that's exactly where Joseph finds himself. He finds himself building this tomb, looking into spiritual things, not sure who the Messiah will be, and all of a sudden this man will walk into his court. And he is dumbfounded by how this guy handles power. 
in a world where everybody is power grabbing and manipulating and lying, this guy is fearless. This guy is strong. This guy is articulate. This guy stands up for truth right there, not in some far off place, but right there in the Supreme Court of his day. Jesus is there articulating and standing firm as this incredible, fearless leader. It is so striking to Joseph, who's really been thinking about Jesus for almost 30 years by the time he was born, probably hearing about him, weighing evidence of him. It says that Joseph decided to become a secret disciple of Jesus. A secret disciple. And again, you see Jesus' custom home here because Jesus could have called him out on it. Come on, there's an altar call to be made here. Come on, you've got to go public. Come on, if you're, if you're scared of being, be, being uh, named with me here, how are you going to be named with me anywhere? But Jesus' custom approach is so amazing. Jesus says, I'm going to let you advance at your own pace. I'm going to let you explore at your own pace. Even when I need you most, I mean, if you were standing before the Supreme Court and they're all out to get you, wouldn't that be the time you're like, hey, you, I know you're one of my secret disciples. I need a lawyer here. Even when Jesus needs a lawyer the most and knows he has a secret disciple in the group, Jesus still gives him time to process at his own pace. Shockingly, gentlemen. Over the years, as people come to explore, kick the tires on Christianity or faith, I'm always amazed that folks say, listen, Chad, I'm interested in spiritual questions. But when you come to church, they ask you to do weird things. So even though I'd like to talk about who Jesus is and who God is and is there truth and and how do you find meaning and purpose, I have to go to a church service to do it. And it's just weird, whether it's the dead guy hanging on the wall or people raising their hands or just these, these weird religious activities. I'd rather just take a class at college to answer my, my questions because I don't have to get all the weirdness. So one of the reasons we have an exploring service, an equipping service, is we want to respect you and your journey. There's not going to be an altar call or a stand-up or a, a, a cringe factor for you. We want you, whatever you believe, to explore at your own pace and your own journey. And we work really hard to try and create an experience where you go, oh, I know that song. I've never thought about that song that way. That's interesting. Rather than, oh, my goodness, I'm going to come to church. I've got to listen to music I don't like or have weird experiences. I just, it's not worth it. And I think I know exactly how you feel. When I was 23, I had a, a, a guy who was a Christian who lived in this apartment complex my wife and I had first moved into. And we got to be good friends. Had him over for dinner a few times. And, and uh, he found out that I played racquetball. I said, oh, yeah, I played racquetball in college. He said, oh, would you ever want to come to my racquetball club? I thought that'd be great. He said, well, how about we go this Thursday? That sounds great. So Thursday came and, and uh, he took me over to the racquetball and immediately uh, I had some intimidation because I'd never been in a racquetball club. I mean, these were serious racquetball players. I was finding out I wasn't as serious as they were. We get into the court and we're playing and this guy's 10, 15 years older than me and he is beating the snot out of me. I, I am just getting killed and I thought I was younger than him, 23, he's 30, whatever he was. I was going to kill him, his technique. So now I'm intimidated that, and feeling very insecure. So I'm like, oh, i got to get out of here. I'm feeling really, oh, hey, good game, good game, good game. Uh, so we said, well, let's hit the showers, we'll head back. So we go, we hit the showers, and I was so glad that it wasn't like one of those locker room showers from high school where, like, everybody was sort of out there in, in the, woo! You know, I was like, oh, good, there's a private area. Okay, I'm a little more modest, so this a little bit better. So I come out, I got my towel on, finish my shower, I'm about to get my clothes on. He goes, hey, how, do, how about we hit the hot tub? I didn't bring a swimming suit. He doesn't have a swimming suit. 
but he didn't really ask. He said, let's hit the hot tub. And now I'm having a very awkward experience because now I don't want to feel like, uh, so I'm following him in my towel. Like, and I come to this next room and there's a hot tub in the middle of the floor and there's everyone in the hot tub, people talking in the hot tub, talking business. How's your game? And now I'm feeling awkward. Like, okay, I like racquetball. I don't mind you as a friend. I don't get in a hot tub with other naked men, with other naked women for that matter either. So, uh, so then I'm like, okay, this is awkward. So then I do the, ooh, still pretty hot from the game. I think I'll sit on the edge with my feet in. And then that was feeling a little weird. Like, why aren't you getting in? So I'm like, so I slip the towel off. Okay, I'm in there for about a minute and a half. Man, it's just hot. Okay, I think I'm going to go get dressed. And I came home. My wife says, how is racquetball? I will never play racquetball with Wayne ever again. Why? Not that I didn't like Wayne. It's not that I didn't enjoy having my, my, my skills challenged in racquetball. He added some weird experience to it that was just outside of my comfort zone. And with church, many times people come in, you've been at church for 20 years, and suddenly you're like, I got some spiritual questions. You get no Bible study, like Mark talked about, and you're like, oh my goodness, everybody knows better than me. I, I feel intimidated. I feel insecure. I've been building a business for 30 years. These people have been like Bible nerds studying the Bible. How can I compete? And then it's sort of weird experiences. You come to a service and they're asking you to stand up and sing songs. You're like, I can't think of an environment where a man is asked to stand up and sing a song except church. That's weird. It may not be weird for your religious people, but it's weird for me. So part of what we try and create is a place where you, like, like Joseph, can explore at your own pace. To examine the evidence. To come face to face with Jesus and examine who he is and what he said. And over time say, yeah, I wonder if this is true. I wonder if he has what I want. As a man of law, even though he's now a secret disciple, Joseph has not yet gone public. The evidence hasn't pushed him far enough to do that. But it's this particular Passover, this particular death of Jesus, that pushes him over the edge with the evidence. Because he's not only the evidence of a, a fearless leader, it's the evidence of an earth-shattering death. I mean, it's an earth-shattering death. <clears throat> Pardon me. Here's what the Bible describes when Jesus died. It says, about the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, these are radical claims. Claims of which you might say, this is why I don't believe the Bible's true. There is no way the whole world went dark for three hours. That's scientifically impossible. Or, if you knew what the veil was made out of, this saying the veil was torn in, in Jerusalem would be the equivalent of me saying that the Washington Monument cracked in half. I mean, this, everyone knew what this veil was. This was the veil. It would be the equivalent of layers of thickness of carpet. You could not rip this thing. And it was a monument everyone saw or knew about when they came to temple. Oh, that's the veil that separates mankind from God in the Holy of Holies. And all of a sudden, Joseph, who knows all the scribes and the priests personally from interactions, have friends of his who came in and said, I was there. That thing tore down the middle. He could go out his door and go, oh, my goodness, it's dark at the sixth hour. Why is it dark at the sixth hour? There's evidence all around him. Now, if you were reading from this book, you would say, oh, my goodness, if Joseph, the Supreme Court justice of the day, weighed the evidence, said it was true, it's got to be true. But we're like, Joseph, who's that? So to help you sort of weigh the evidence, whenever the claim is made, you say, well, the Bible supports the Bible, that's circular reasoning. We ought to look and see, are there any collaborating evidences that support the claim of the Bible? That, sure enough, there was darkness in the land. A guy named Lee Strobel, 
Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for the Sun-Times. He was an agnostic. And uh, he, um, he had a wife who was a Christian, and it really bothered him because she was into the whole faith thing, and he was more of a skeptic. Um, he remembered years ago when he, he had uh, decided to get married. He, he got down on one knee, and he had the proposal to her. And after they got married, um, he really struggled with faith for a while. So as he was struggling for a while... Um, he decided to investigate the claims. And one of the claims he investigates in the book, The Case for Christ, was whether or not it's even possible, plausible, or any collaborative evidence that there was ever darkness in the land. Well, there are several non-Christian, non-faith-based people who reference this event. One is written in 52 AD, a guy named Salus. Salus says, in writing in history, and, and as a historian, he covered a large period of time, but he was living in 52 AD, covering the, the time frame of history in his day. He said, on the world, the whole world was pressed the most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. He's, talking, he's writing in 52 AD, but he's describing what happened in 33 AD. There was a fearful darkness, he said, and rocks were rent by an earthquake, also what the Bible claims. In all the places of Judea and other districts were thrown down, this darkness, he says, must have been a solar eclipse. So... The next historian is going to disagree with him on the cause, but he does say there was darkness. Another historian, writing in 220 A.D., says it couldn't have been an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse. The reason it couldn't have been an eclipse, Julius Africanus says, is because the very way in which we schedule Passover as Jewish um, people, followers of the law, all of the Jewish feasts are based on a lunar calendar. So Passover, when Jesus died, is always on Passover, which is always based on the time that the moon is on the far side of the earth. So he said, you've acknowledged there was darkness, but he was wrong in saying it was a solar eclipse. Because if you remember what a solar eclipse looks like, uh, that's not when the sun appears between the moon and the and the, and the I had a guy in science class, my dad, one time. Uh, he asked his, his class, he said, hey, what's a solar eclipse? That's when the sun gets between the moon and the earth. Now that's a problem is what that is. So what he's saying is it cannot be the moon couldn't have caused the darkness because the moon is on the opposite side at the time of Passover. This was a supernatural event to which you say, this is why I can't believe the Bible. Supernatural events. But think about this logically. If there is a God who's all powerful and if he wrote a book about things he did as an all powerful God, wouldn't it be more of a problem if you read a book that didn't have anything supernatural happening? You'd say, what kind of a God is this? It is rational that a supernatural God could do supernatural things. Now, you don't have to believe it, but maybe that will help you sort of you know, inch along in the process. Well, there's more evidence, because at the same time, we have another historian, a Greek historian writing, and the Greek historian writing is talking about something that happened in Greece during the 202nd Olympics. And he says, and he wrote, he was a historian that covered everything from 776 B.C. all the way through 40 A.D. And in his account, he writes about... In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great eclipse of the sun, greater than had ever been known before. And look at the time. At the sixth hour of the day was changed into night, and the stars were seen in the heavens. And he mentions an earthquake occurred in Bithynia and overthrew a great part of the city of Nicaea. So here we are in Greece, far away from Jerusalem, giving collaborating evidence of the darkness, the time, and the earthquake. Now there's going to be a quiz over this later, so I hope you've been taking notes. Some of you are like, All right, I've lost interest. Now, if you're into investigative data, the Bible claims to be an act of history, so you can study it, you can investigate it, you can find out if it's true. In fact, there's a guy named Jay, he's an advocate 
at the Supreme Court level, Jay Sekula. And he was a lawyer from Brooklyn. He was Jewish. And he found himself standing in our Supreme Court at age 30-something, early 30s. I mean, this is like, you know, Rocky. This is like, you know, Super Bowl time. And so at age 30, early 30s, he's standing in the Supreme Court as an advocate because several of his family members became followers of Jesus. Now, he was not a follower of Jesus. The one thing he knew about being Jewish is that you don't follow Jesus. Even though Jesus is Jewish and all his disciples were Jewish and all the early Christians were Jewish, he had believed this sort of lie through history because how terrible Christians had been to Jewish people that you couldn't be a Jesus follower and Jewish. Well, his family members not only became followers of Jesus by investigating the evidence, but they also worked for or, or part of a group called Jews for Jesus. And so a law got passed by the, by the airport that said they couldn't pass out their literature. And so he had this really weird situation. He's standing in the Supreme Court as a Jewish Brooklyn skeptical lawyer, arguing on behalf of his Christian family so that they can pass out conversion tracts that he doesn't agree with to friends, but he still believed in religious liberty. And he said it was just a fascinating experience, dialoguing back and forth with Scalia. And it was like being back in law school again. It was just like adrenaline pumping, fantastic experience. And sure enough, won the case. And he's now become an advocate for religious liberty across the, the United States through his career. He came back from that court case and he said, you know, my, my family members aren't idiots. Maybe I should apply the same investigative process to Jesus that I have to this case. Some of his family members said, well, have you ever looked at one of our prophets, Isaiah, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus? And Isaiah 53 describes a man of sorrows, a man who would be wounded for our transgression, pierced for our iniquity, a man acquainted with, acquainted with grief. As he read this, he went, oh, my goodness, that does sound a lot like somebody being crucified, written hundreds of years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. So he read all the different commentaries that said, no, he's really talking about himself. That didn't really seem to hold water. Well, he's actually talking about the nation of Israel would be pierced. No, he's, there's actually the nation of Israel's in the passage, but, but this person's different. And he went through a process of investigating the facts. And as a lawyer, as a Brooklyn follower of Judaism, he came to the conclusion, based on the evidence, that Jesus is who he says he was. And he became a follower of Jesus, still an advocate for religious liberty for everyone, but his journey brought him to the place that he was a follower of Christ. That's exactly what we find with Joseph. Joseph would be the equivalent today of Chief Justice Roberts on our Supreme Court. And he has been weighing the evidence, weighing the evidence. Over 30 years he waited. But now this blackness, this torn curtain becomes the final piece of evidence that says, I've got to go public. I've got to risk everything to be associated. This was God's representative. To which you're saying, a little too little too late. But with Jesus, it's never too late. And it just took him that long to weigh the evidence. And it took Jesus' death to be the final piece of evidence that pushed him public with this. So we see three responses, and, and, and they are scandalous. Scandalous responses. The first thing is that he has this incredible risk. He risks his international reputation by going to Pilate. He goes to the Romans who just killed Jesus and says, I want the body. Look what it says. Joseph Arimathea, a prominent council member who had been waiting for the kingdom of God, took courage after he died 
He went to Pilate, the Roman government's representative, and asked for or craved the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled he could be dead so soon, so he turns to the equivalent of General Maximus, uh, a centurion, and says, go make sure you're the expert on death. Is he dead? Comes back, he's dead. Huh, all right, then I will gift you the body. Now, this guy, Supreme Court Justice, interacting with the Romans, interacting with the world, is risking a lot by going to the Romans. It would be the equivalent today of us having just killed Osama bin Laden and Chief Justice Roberts goes on CNN and says, I am this week going to talk to President Obama and I personally would like to identify with and put the body of Osama bin Laden in my personal family tomb. What? You're a terrorist that the Roman government just killed. You're saying you believe in him and you're going to associate with him and you're going to go public with being associated with him and you're going to put him in your family tomb. What are you thinking? That's how scandalous this is. Why in the world would a wealthy, influential, powerful man risk everything? International reputation, power to be associated with Jesus. He'd weigh the evidence. And he could not go public anymore. You know, for years, skeptics said, oh, the Bible, it can't be true. It mentions this guy named Pilate. There's no evidence ever been found of Pilate. And then, I think it was in the 1940s, might have been the 60s, um, we found one of the first pieces of archaeological evidence to support Pilate. Like, I got to see it when I was in Israel a few years ago. I'd seen it in, in uh, drawings and pictures for years. But it actually says here in Latin, you know, to the divine Augustus, Pontius Pilate, the perfect of Judea, uh, was dedicated this monument or this particular area. So all through time, more and more evidence backs up the claims that the Bible's assertions are true. Enough that Supreme Court Justice Joseph Arimathea decides to risk his international reputation to go to Pilate and say, I want the body of the terrorist. And it's gifted to him. His second risk is that he's going to risk his professional insulation. Up until this point, he's been a secret member of the council, trying to work as almost like a CIA agent to help them do the right thing and into the corruption. But now he's going to go public. No longer is he insulated. And so public is he at this point that he, one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem, will buy the fine linen and he will take down the body of Jesus. Now think about that. That would be the equivalent of... Warren Buffett and Bill Gates saying we're going to come and take a bloodied man off a cross. This is not the work of professionals. This is not the work of men of influence. This is not the work of men with, 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 with power. But he craved the body. You can imagine that he went and grabbed maybe a, a crowbar or a hammer. He would have needed a step stool. On his way, he picks up Another one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem, Nicodemus. And these two wealthy men, one who'd been a secret disciple, the other one who had come to him by night, walk up to Golgotha. And as they see Jesus on the cross, they're going to take him down. But he's had the equivalent of railroad spikes pounded through his wrists and through his feet. And they're going to try and care for a body that's been bloodied and torn and shredded and try and do it with some humane care. 
Imagine taking out a crowbar and trying to pull a railroad spike out of two feet nailed right through and to do it in a gentle way. And then the feet are dangling there. Imagine the, the smell of death. And the whole time you're thinking, I now get the message. He did this for me. So you come around to the other side and you climb up and you're trying to pull out the rail. And there's blood and there's sweat. And as you pull out that spike, you're trying to hold the body so it's now dangling from one nail. And Nicodemus maybe is helping you on one side as you quickly move to the other. And again, you're trying to figure out how to humanely pull it out. And you pull and you yank and you finally get the right angle and you pull it out. And now his body collapses and now his blood is on you, on Nicodemus. And you bring the body and you lay it on the ground. And Bill Gates, Nicodemus, and Warren Buffett, Joseph of Arimathea, Sit down with this body. And as they sit with this body, they're going to wipe it clean. There's not a square inch when you were tortured or whipped that wouldn't have chunks of you missing. And they're going to be wiping it, washing it with care, with love, with concern, maybe moments of nausea. Rarely have they ever been this close to a body, certainly not a body of a tortured soul. Face to face, eye to eye, body to body. Some of you have children who are in their 30s. Some of you are in your 30s. Imagine being next to someone you love who's 33 and you've watched a public spectacle of them being tortured and killed and bloodied. And you're risking all professional Insulation because you're not only associated with it, but you're washing the body, cleansing the body. And then they pick up the body. And they carry that body to Joseph of Arimathea's personal family tomb. And they place it in. The risk here is so outlandish, so amazing, so incredible what he does here. <coughs> Not only the witnessing of the brutality and the pain and the anguish and the heartache. But now to associate this terrorist with his own personal family tomb, a man with his reputation, was scandalous. Which brings us to our third response. Which is that he risks his own family, not his professional reputation, but his family reputation. After this, Joseph Aramathia and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, two guys who had to process slowly over time and weigh the evidence are the only two people there for him when he died. And they bring with them a hundred pounds of spice and myrrh. This is unfathomable. You would not bring a hundred pounds of spice and myrrh to a king. This is the level of generosity. This is the level of risk. This is the level of, uh, of affection, not even seen by the kings. And yet two men of great means are pouring out a hundred pounds of spices to show their affection. Because they got the message of the Bible is that he was dying for me. He did this for me. He makes me clean. My religion, my reputation, my good works, none of that makes me clean before God. 
He died the death I should have died because he lived the life I should have lived. And the risk was more than that, because on Passover, if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonial unclean. So by touching this dead body, you could not participate in the Passover. You could not go to Sabbath. You were unclean for a long period of days. So every member of the family is going to say, hey, where's Joseph for dinner tonight? He touched the dead body. He's ceremonial unclean. He can't be here. Whose body? Jesus. The terrorist? Yeah. But Joseph discovered the message of the Bible is that when we give God all our uncleanness, all of our brokenness, all of our rebellion, all of our secrets, we give him what's unclean. And by touching him, believing in him, trusting in him, he makes us clean. Joseph's like, oh. I have never felt peace like this before. I've never felt joy like this before. I've never known anything was true. It took me 30 years to process it. I know this is the Messiah. I know this is the right thing. I know this is where I want to place my eternity. And the response to this fearless leader, the response to this evidence is lavish generosity to God. Lavish. A hundred pounds of myrrh. And they placed him in a tomb. And little would he know that giving the family tomb, risking the family reputation, risking that this would be the most famous tomb in history. Because three days later, Jesus would fulfill another prediction and promise made hundreds of years in advance and made over the last three years by him that he would raise himself back from the dead. So here's the question. It's amazing how Jesus uses a custom approach with a man who operated in the court of law. But why would he risk so much? Why? Because he'd weigh the evidence. And you'd say, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it for your reputation. It wasn't worth it. And I think Joseph would say, it's not how much it costs. It's how much it's worth. That's how you make a business decision. It may cost a lot. Maybe a very expensive home. But it's worth more than you paid. So stop asking how much does it cost. Ask how much is it worth. And Joseph, an expert in law, says, I'm going to tell you, I weighed the evidence for 30 years. It is worth everything. It is worth everything. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose, he might say. And isn't that the question we have in every area of our life? Many of us say, I don't want to get serious about God or Jesus because I'm going to lose my edge or I'm going to lose my, 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 my edge in business or I'm going to be associated with one of those Jesus freaks, one of those weird things. I don't want any of that. I don't want the weirdness. Neither did Joseph. But don't miss the truth. What would it be worth to know there's no shame, no guilt? You could know right now for sure that you are at peace with God and that God sees you as a saint, not based on what you do, but based on what he did. That's the message. And it may cost you everything, giving your heart, giving your allegiance, but it is worth a hundred thousand times more. It's a question we ask ourselves all the time. It's not what it costs, it's what it's worth. You ask yourself, you know, should I apologize? Should I swallow my pride? Should I give in? Should I reconcile? Ah, oh, the cost of being wrong, the cost of being humiliated, the cost of that email, the cost of that conversation. But isn't it worth to restore a marriage? Isn't it worth it to fight for a relationship with your son or daughter? Isn't it worth the cost? I spent five years trying to reconcile with my brother. Five years. I went, it's just not worth the cost. And I said, keep paying the cost. It's worth it to reconcile with someone, even who doesn't want to reconcile with you. It took me five years before we reconciled. And the only way I know to do that wasn't because my brother was worth it. I'll tell you that. 
And he said, same to me. It's because I know of a God who said it was worth it. That he went to great lengths to come to earth, to die, to be crucified, to be shredded on my behalf. Because of what he did for me, I say it's worth it for me to reconcile with others. Bob Goff is a lawyer. Interesting character, if you've never read his book. As a lawyer, he... um, really felt like the living proof of Jesus wasn't just in the evidence, but it was also the way in which Jesus loved people, the way Jesus was generous to people. And so he began, as a lawyer, he couldn't get into law school because his grades weren't good enough. And so instead, he showed up to the law school he wanted to get in, it turned him down, and sat there every day as the dean came by. What are you doing here? I didn't get into your law school. Then why are you here? All you got to do is tell me to buy the books and I can get in. You're not getting in, son. Day after day. Week after week. Bob Goff sat there at law school. The, the school year began one day in. He's still there. Second day in. Dean says, are you still here? Yeah. And I'm already late. I'm already behind. All you need to do is say the word and I'll get into law school. About the fourth day in the class, the dean sees him there again and says, fine, go buy your books. And that's how he got into law school. He graduated from law school, did incredibly well. He then began to work in, on justice issues related to helping kids, specifically in Uganda, related to education or sex trade or just helping people who were oppressed because he felt like Jesus, the, the call of Jesus on his life as a lawyer was to use his skills as a lawyer to, to impact the, the powerless. Uganda was so impacted by what Goff did that they called him up as an American representative and said, would you be our ambassador of Uganda to the United States? He's like, I'm a white guy. You've done more for Uganda than anyone ever has. And so he became the international representative from Uganda because of his call. In fact, if you go to his house today, you'll see he has a Ugandan flag at his house. He identified himself with Uganda. He identified himself with the cause of peace. He identified himself with the work of Jesus. And part of what we do as a church is we try and let you be yours to explore whatever your journey is. And there's no pressure, there's no closing sale about giving your money. But we know what happens is when you get close to God, you say, I want to be more generous like Jesus was. I want to be as generous to others as God was generous to me. And sure, that means there'll be money that you're giving to the church and the work because you love the environments that were created to help you grow and your kids grow. But you'll be, you'll be really stimulated to think, how do I use my skills, my talents, my professional windows of opportunity? And how do I begin to see all of it through the lens of what this man did for me on the cross? And when that happens, you not only have peace in heaven, you begin to create peace on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible story of Joseph. Thank you for the way in which you create a customized journey that would work for him and would draw him as a man of of law, a man of facts, so much so that he would pour out such a lavish generosity. And we thank you for the chance we have to encourage all of us to see the world through your eyes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here as we continue our Custom Home series next week. Um, If you came prepared to give today, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If not, grab a Custom Home booklet and you can follow along with us during the week. Thanks again.